I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro. And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Hey, Ginger. Hey, Esther. How's it going? It's going awesome. Yeah, it is going awesome. We are in amazing New York still. We've already had some awesome conversations. And who are we here with today? We are here with Angelina Darasaw. And wow. she is the CEO and founder of C Suite Coach. And I just have to say again, New York is my best friend. I always have a great time. And I, I feel like it's it's a pulsating, vibrant city that rejuvenates me. Yeah. It and does. I, I don't it does rejuvenate you. It really does. Um so before we get started, I'm gonna um talk about this amazing entrepreneur. Angelina Darasaw is a social entrepreneur, an international business and career coach, and a digital media strategist. She is the founder and CEO of C-Suite Coach, a career coaching platform that provides development resources to diverse working professionals. Um, Prior to founding C-Suite Coach, she was a senior manager of digital business development at Viacom, where she developed strategic business opportunities and partnerships with companies like Twitter, Snapchat, Tumblr and ESPN. Welcome, Angelina. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I have to say, I agree. New York is just amazing. Yeah. I'm not saying that because I'm a native New Yorker. <laughs> I'm sure that's not. That's nothing to do with why you're saying that. Wow. So I have so many questions. Let's let's just go ahead and dive in. So Ginger just named a bunch of really huge corporate machines, <laughs> which is so interesting because we always talk to entrepreneurs who were in huge corporate machines who decided for some reason that they wanted to be their own boss. Uh, so just tell me, what is it about you that's like Twitter or Viacom? You know what? I'm going to do my own thing. And this is the way that it has to be for me. I would say a combination of things really just led by passion and driven by wanting to accomplish a certain goal. And for me, that goal was helping more people of color and women get promoted at work and finding what was going to be the right way to do that. And I really realized early that when I tried to hone in on what helped me get promoted early in my career, it was access to professional development opportunities. It was career coaching. And that being something that was provided for me by many of the programs I had access to. And I wanted to figure out a way how to scale it and scale it up. And maybe it was a little bit of cockiness. Maybe it was feeling like, hey, I can uh, make this big dream happen. I see you ever heard that book, Why Should All the White Guys Have All the Fun? Yes. I see all of them doing it. Uh, my age, I was working with in business development, I was working with clients in digital that were 25-year-old CEOs that were well-backed and funded. And a part of me just said, why can't I just give, I know I don't have the generational wealth, I know I don't have the capital, but why can't I have this sort of confidence in myself to just go out and do something and try it? Speaking of 25-year-old CEOs, um, interestingly enough, I heard you say yesterday at the wonderful event that we were at um, that you were part of the millennial 1%. 
Yeah. I Can wonder- you explain what that is and how it led to you deciding that you wanted this company to happen? Sure. So I have to look up the latest on what those numbers are now. But back in the day when I was in the workforce, I started out making a very um, humble salary uh, in my first role in my career. And I was making less than $40,000 as an entry-level person at ESPN. And in three years, I was able to triple my salary with bonuses, with getting promotion, with really learning how to negotiate well in between promotions and job changes. And that for me was such a huge deal because I remember growing up and knowing how much people in my community made. I remember growing up and knowing specifically how much the salaries in my family were. And I was at a place where I was 25 years old, making on par with elders in my family. And I knew what that meant in terms of the sort of access that I could provide for my community, the sort of impact I could have. I joined boards of nonprofits. Um, I was able to engage in philanthropy in a number of different ways. And uh, that's something that I wanted to be not an anomaly in my community, but more of the norm. And so again, it went back to that theme of thinking about how do we make this the norm. And it is really about scaling up access to resources. So you talked about um, being keenly aware of the financial situations of the people around you where you grew up. Did you grow up around entrepreneurship at all? You know, when I think about where I grew up, I grew up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, and then later I moved to East Flatbush area. Uh, So always in Brooklyn my whole life. And when... I think about, did I grow up around entrepreneurship? The part of me that wants to say no is I didn't grow up around the Fast Company branded or the Forbes branded entrepreneurship, right? I didn't have anyone in my family who I know had a big business that scaled. And the immediate people around me were not big business owners. But were there people in my community that I had relationships with that I saw doing entrepreneurial things, whether it was selling Mary Kay or opening up a barbershop or a pizza shop? And maybe their businesses didn't always take off, but some of them had a longevity. I saw it around me constantly. And I saw people in my neighborhood that looked like me that took ownership over their businesses, over their careers, and over really uh, their ability to provide something to the community. So yes and no. I saw it around me, uh, but in a very different way. And I think, unfortunately, a way that's not glamorized, right? We only give attention frequently to these big funded entrepreneurs. And I think that can be really discouraging for a couple reasons. One, that's not going to be everyone's story. Two, it's usually not going to be the story of a black and brown person. And then three, it's not necessarily the story everyone wants. When you think about what it is to run a VC-backed company, that's not the life for everyone. That's not the life I want. I know that. It can take away a lot of your autonomy. You have all of these different pressures on you. Some people want to provide something small that, or in a small way that has a big impact. I was saying today I'm a little fish in a big pond or a little fish making big waves, um, rather. And I think about that. That's what a lot of of small business owners want to do. Not everyone wants to be a billionaire CEO. Yeah, but a lot of us, though, want to have, like you said earlier, sustainable wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to be able to have choices for ourselves and, you know, our children if we have them that, yes. you know, maybe they won't get into Harvard, but sure as heck, we have the money to make sure they can if they want to. Um, so um, when you think about 
that with your own career, do you feel like you're on track, Angelina, to build generational wealth for yourself? Because again, I feel like we can easily talk about all the deficits because we're in a lot of them all the time as black women business owners and as women in general. Um, do you feel like with the work that you're doing, because C-Suite Coach has developed a tremendous brand. Um, you are all over the internet from Instagram to LinkedIn to YouTube. Um, you know, you're the national lead Google digital coach for the digital coaches program. You have an extended celebrity network. Um, you have a vast community of women entrepreneurs. Do you think that you have everything that you need to build this generational wealth that we're all trying and striving for? Because I feel like, I feel like I'm, you know, I've been out here for a long time too, for over 20 years. And I still feel like, when am I going to get that? What is it going to take? How do I reach it? You know, do you think you're, you're, you're on track? Cause you, I feel like you have more time than I have. <laughs> so <laughs> I would say it's a complicated question, but mm -hmm. the short answer for me would be yes, I do. Oh my gosh. I love it. Wait, can we just take a moment, <laughs> Esther? She said yes. yes. Oh my gosh. She said yes. She feels like she's on track. Okay, continue. So is everything set up exactly the way it should be for that to be actualized tomorrow? No. By next year? No. But do I feel like I have everything I need? Yes, because I think I'm very, and this is what I would recommend for any small business owner to get on track, is I pay attention to my business. I pay attention to the problems that there are and the opportunities for growth. And when I see something isn't going right, I lose sleep over it. Mm -hmm. And that sucks sometimes, but it also generates the idea on how to fix it. And I pay attention to what needs to be fixed. So I think taking that time out, and this is probably, Probably the biggest thing that I struggle with is when you are a small business owner, you're focusing so much on the day to day and how to maintain your existing slate of business. But we have to be focused on growth. And so taking that time out to identify opportunities for growth is really important. And at least I would say once a month, I'm spending time thinking about what, it, what could I have done this month that I didn't do? What opportunities did I not make happen that should have happened? And how do I make sure this doesn't happen again? And so that ability to really analyze and be strategic about where to take my business to the next level is what makes me feel like, yes, I don't get it all right all the time. It's definitely not all right now, but it's going to be right because I'm going to be the prince of my business, right? Like he used to sit there and record, look at recordings of his concerts and figure out what he was going to do for the next show to make it better. And that's what I think we all have to do with our businesses. Oftentimes when we see women running businesses like this, they're a lot of them are type A personalities. I mean, you guys all have kind of this unifying go, go, go thread. Like you yourself have a connection and you too, Jinja, you guys have a connection with a major machine, but you're also CEOs of your own companies that are thriving and being sustained, right? But you just said something really interesting. You said that maybe things aren't exactly perfect or exactly the way that you want it. What happened in your head where you were able to kind of let go of perfectionism. Were you a perfectionist and, and how did you deal with it? So I think that letting go of perfectionism is something that has to happen daily 
And for me, I just think about needing to go, needing to push through and get things done because at the end of the day, I've made mistakes, mistakes that I freak out over because I am a perfectionist. And when I say sometimes it chills me to my core, like having had a typo in a contract or something crazy like that, those things matter to me so much because I care about the brand of my business. I care about the output of my work. But at the same time, I can't let that stop me from moving forward. And the more that I sit there and sulk about the mistake I did, the less time I have to make sure that that client who maybe has a an unfavorable impression based off mm-hmm. that one mistake, mm-hmm. I could be rebuilding that relationship or improving that relationship instead of sitting there and sulking about it. What were your first major struggles when you stepped outside of the corporate machine and you said, I'm I'm going in on my own? Like, what was a moment where you were like... I- the biggest struggle was confidence, mm-hmm. for sure. And I'm not going to say that that's not a constant struggle. It still is a struggle. But that was the biggest struggle. And... One of the things that happens when you're tied to big brands is that those big brands can sometimes be really a part of your identity. And to walk into a bar or a conference or anywhere and say, I work at ESPN or I work at Viacom and there's this big major brand and they're backing me and they're paying for all my travel, all of those things. Uh, I was a magnet for people. And in my early networking events, I found that when I would say, I'm a small business owner, I have this company, C-Suite Coach, people would look at me like, oh, okay, like this is the person to ignore. And I, I watched it happen. I watched people say, okay, and see, saw the difference in reaction. Uh, and then I realized I'm going to use this opportunity. It actually was a good friend who shared this feedback with me because I would get so stressed out networking in the beginning. Use that as an opportunity to perfect your pitch and figure out different ways to engage people when they are giving you that side eye. And it's maybe because you haven't captured their attention. And then when I looked at it from that lens, I used every opportunity to tell people who had no idea what talent development means or what career coaching means as a business to try to pitch to them. So I would be in Ubers. I would be in corner stores or picking up food and telling people about what I did. And I realized that over time I got more confident. Do you think that um, your network of advisors and sponsors mostly is comprised of women or do you have a diverse um, community of people helping you navigate because you are your company has been in business for less than five years. So you're still in a relatively new space. Um, Do you have the same group of people that you're working with or do you have new people that you've added? Are they mostly women? Are they mostly men? I mean, what kind of what kind of community is giving you the guidance to be successful? Because I have one and they've changed over time. I would definitely say that there's changes and it is in seasons. And there are also one thing I will say, uh, having high quality mentors and sponsors sometimes means that you're dealing with really busy people that don't have a full a whole lot of time to deal with you. Yeah, that's true. So the more high power they are and the more accomplished they are, they can offer you great things, but maybe it's not a day-to-day. So I look at my network of mentors and sponsors 
in buckets. Mm -hmm. And there are those people that if I am working on something big, when I need to close a contract with a company like Google or whoever else, and I really need this feedback or this lens from this person who's done it a thousand times over, I'll make that phone call. But then there are the people that I can call on on the day to day. And they're maybe more at my peer level, but are on the corporate side and giving me the feedback because they're picking suppliers or they're picking people that they do business with in a really different way. Uh, And so it's across the board. Mainly, um, I do have many peer mentors and sponsors that are people of color that are women. Mm -hmm. And I also have a couple that um, are, are not as well. And I bet you've probably learned because of the busyness of the people that you're working with um, to be very clear and to hone your questions and get right to the point. I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, when you're, you're giving them an opportunity to, 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 to help them get to the next step or to give them a tactic and they'll come to you and not be ready to really be clear about what they want. And it could be fear that they're not being clear, or it could just be, um, oh my gosh, I, I, I have so much I need and I, and I just don't even know how to focus. So I, I love that by now I'm just, what I'm hearing is that, um, you've been able to practice in every single corner of your entrepreneur journey, how to get clarity around the things that you need. Um, which is important. Otherwise, you can't be successful when you're dealing with um, the diversity of people that you're working with. Um, but I want to ask you, you know, you've got a lot on your plate. You, like I said earlier, are the national coach for Google. I mean, working with Google means you have to Google size everything you're doing. How in the world are you taking care of yourself? I find it very difficult to decide to take care of myself. I mean, it it really starts with the decision. I'm going to do this and nothing's going to stop me. It's just like when you open your business, you're like, I'm opening a company. I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring it to life. What are you doing to help yourself? So I am practicing my no a lot this year. I have been for the last two years. And I would say that that's made a huge difference. And even the growth I've had since 2017, the first two years were really difficult for me. Mm. And, uh, Someone told me that in order to really have people appreciate your yes, you need to use your no more. And I realized that. And I have to be really picky and almost uh, protective about my time. And that means that I realize that even though there's a part of me that's a social butterfly, I like people, I'm very friendly, I can't do the coffees. I can't do the dinner catch-ups. I can't do... Uh, a lot of socializing because my time really has to be spent building and developing those existing friendships. It's very hard when you're in a growth stage in your business to invest in new relationships. Oh my gosh. It's hard to invest in anything other than the growth of your business. I it mean, really I feel is. like that's why I'm saying when we think about your, your health and, and your wellness, you have to decide to do that when you're an entrepreneur. I mean, you know, I have conversations a lot, um, with people that have regular jobs where they actually go to an office and they come home and then they can just sort of binge for hours watching some TV show on Netflix. I would love, love, love to, to feel like I had the choice to do that, but I'm so driven and I know you're driven too, which is why you're successful. And that brings me to something else I want to understand. So a lot of times with us, we are um, not used to working in diverse environments to help us get to the right people, to build the relationships 
that are going to position us to be able to make money, right? I mean, there's a lot of things happening. I mean, we have to be perfect. We have to, um, um, you know, we have expectations of the way we're supposed to look, the way we're supposed to walk, the way we're supposed to talk, and the way we navigate amongst ourselves, even when we're networking. So what I'm asking is, what are some of the places that we're failing as black women entrepreneurs and in business that are preventing us from success? And I'm really talking about the social space a little bit too. Um, and I, and I say this because I actually um, did a retreat recently and I walked in the desert and I had, ch- I had quiet and I had a chance to reflect and think about places that I needed to work on and, and, and um, places where I had abundance And I even had a moment where I broke down in tears because I realized that I was trying to be perfect all the time and I can't be perfect all the time, but my, my strive to be perfect, um, is inhibiting my growth. So I'll say this, you're hitting on a lot of different things at once and, that's our experience, right? We're dealing with a lot of different things at once. But the first thing I'll say is that what has really helped me in navigating a lot of the spaces that I walk in is owning who I am and accepting who I am. Uh, So even for me, transitioning sounds like a funny word because I've always had curly hair. I just blow dried it straight. And I knew that there was Uh, a bit of ambiguity that came with that, which maybe created certain acceptances in certain spaces. And to wear my hair curly, which is how it naturally falls and it's bigger and sometimes it's not always perfect, is a statement. And sometimes that can be alarming to certain people. Um, But I made the decision to own who I am for a lot of different reasons. One, straight hair is pretty difficult to maintain. (laughs) Um, It's not weatherproof. My hair falling out of my head actually is a quicker routine and quicker process for me and a lot more comfortable for me than having to worry about sweating if I'm walking too fast or if I'm stressed or anything else or heat or water or all of those things. So that's one thing. So just owning who we are I had one client uh, that at one point talked to me about putting together a natural hair guide for black women. And what a great idea. No, it's I think not. it's a horrible idea. Why is it, wait, wait. Why is that horrible? A natural hair guide. So, OK, let me explain what they were thinking of. They were thinking of how do we show black women what's acceptable in corporate spaces when it comes to natural hair. And so when you talk about the tax and the needing to be perfect sometimes in corporate spaces, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that we put a lot of pressure on black women and no one else to fit a mold that's Mm -hmm. not really designed for us to begin with. Mm -hmm. So that in of itself is a problem. Instead of trying to create spaces where we're accepted for who we are. So who's going to create the space though? We have to create the space. Do we have to force the space though? I mean, that's what I'm trying to say is that we can't create spaces. We have to go into spaces that exist Mm -hmm. and somehow Mm -hmm. create a new person so that we fit in these spaces to get what we need. So it's a balance. And I think that balance is really about self-awareness and really recognizing what you are bringing to the table. And so a good example of this, if we're going to look at it from a, a white framework, Mark Zuckerberg, college dropout, wore sweatshirt all the time, 
but he built something really amazing and that allowed him to move. Yes, he has white privilege and male privilege and all that, but a big part of it, most white men in corporate spaces aren't wearing sweatshirts and and are not college dropouts. It's not the norm. Nope. So when right. able, in order for him to get um, into certain spaces, it was really about what he built and what he created. So I think that if we are leading with the value of what we're bringing and what we create, a little bit more room opens up every time for us to be more of who we want to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one option to think of it that way. And then the other thing is when I think about the balance that is delicate, that has to, that I have to strike sometimes, I think about what I wear in spaces and not to conform and not to assimilate, but just to be aware, right? And if I show up in a space, even we'll talk about Google, we'll talk about working with tech company. If I show up in a space where everyone's wearing jeans and I'm wearing a suit every day, I'm going to stand out and maybe not in the most positive way. So on the flip, if I'm trying to get J.P. Morgan Chase as a client and I'm showing up wearing a sweatshirt and a hoodie and whatever else every day and everyone else is wearing a suit, that might cause problems as well. So I don't think it's telling women, it's definitely not telling women or people of color, this is your uniform, this is what you have to wear to be successful. But it is telling us to pay more attention to our environments and be self-aware and think about the objectives that we want to accomplish and achieve. And if we're trying to land certain clients. No, we don't have to change ourselves, but let's just be aware of how our appearance can determine whether or not this client that clearly has a framework in their mind or an idea of, in their mind of what professionalism looks like, and they may be more accepting based off of the idea and the value that they have shared in their culture. How do I then present myself in a way that might be accepted based off that idea. Right, right. And that's a lot of work. It is a lot Um, of work. You're talking about a lot of work. And when you are an entrepreneur, you have so much going on that to be able to have that instinctively going on in your head. I'm not saying it's instinctive. No, but but I mean, I feel like for you, it has become, I'm saying for you, but for someone that's new, it's sort of, it's a process that evolves over time. You may not jump into the awareness of how to, um, interpret a room or interpret a space or understand, um, you know, the corporate culture um, as quickly as you've been able to do it. So then this is something that you're, you know, that you've developed over time. And so is this something that um, you learned by accident? I mean, you know, you were working in corporate, you know, did you get knocked down? And then, you know, people said, uh, how did you do this, Angeline? You just really screwed this up. This is what you need to learn. Or, you know, did you watch other women navigating? I mean, I, I asked this question because there's a there's a woman um, advisor that I talked to in Chicago, and um, she made it a point. Um, she's Latina. She made it a point to mentor Latinas that were coming to the workspace unprepared, you know, to work in the corporate environment. Um, so how did you how did you figure all this out? So I will definitely say it's not just an innate thing within me. Again, I grew up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. My grandmother was a corrections officer. My mom was a high school teacher. No one was corporate. But Wow, no one was corporate? Not anyone in my family that I grew up with. So where did you get the visual? How did did you decide you wanted this? Because you're so good at it. A lot of it just came with... uh, 
having access to internships, applying to programs. When I was growing up, Hmm. I used to think about what was attractive and uh, what would be a sexy career for me. And I never wanted to be a rapper or a basketball player, probably because I knew I didn't have the talent. But I always just saw myself somewhere in a suit running something (laughs) and just kind of for me, like you were not you were not growing up thinking I'm waiting for Prince Charming. I'm going to wear a suit when I grow up. That was my dream. I used to. Oh, I loved it. I, I love the idea. One of my friends called me a CEO groupie because anytime I could talk to someone who was running something, I would just I was like a kid in a candy store hungry to learn about it. But so I think kind of getting to the core of your question it was having access to coaches is definitely intentional mentorship and intentional programming and hearing messages over and over. So I think about, for instance, even some of the program, C-Suite Coach is also a Department of Education vendor. So we have relationships with New York City Public Schools to put on career coaching programming. So even when I think about the kinds of content we've shared with high school students, it is having repeated messaging about getting them to think about what does it look like to dress up and go to work in an office? What does it mean to show up on time? What does it mean to take care in my presentation? What is good grammar? What's the impact of that? So we have those conversations and I had those kind of conversations early. And then when I say coaching, a big part of what happens when you contract and work with a coach is you get access to feedback. You have to trust your gut, but you also have to recognize that there's always opportunity for growth. And in every stage of my career, if someone would tell me something I didn't like, my initial reaction couldn't be just let me be defensive and tune that person out. It was what part of this can I take to develop myself and to become better to achieve the goals that I'm seeking to achieve. And I think that's something that I see common uh, as not happening, okay, yeah. receiving feedback properly. So even if my clients tell me something I don't like, or if I have a customer who's unhappy, my reaction can't just be, well, I'm not going to do business with them or I don't want to work with them. My reaction has to be, is there any part of this that I can take that's going to help me bring my business to the next level? Because ultimately that's my goal. So if this customer had a problem, are there any customers that could conceivably have that same problem? And that's a skill that I gained, that ability to receive that feedback and consider it that way from working with a coach. You know, I love that because this is a common theme that we're hearing that the most successful entrepreneurs are power listeners. Yeah, definitely. And and they learn and they take what they're hearing and they translate it and it can apply it to multiple situations to find mm-hmm. success. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I feel like I need to be better at that, Esther. Wow. What an excellent conversation. Excellent. Excellent conversation. Thank you so much, Angelina. <laughs> really. And um, thank you. Glad to um, be working with you as a Google Digital Coach as well. Just feel very super powered in your presence myself. I just learned from listening to you talk about your successes. And there's just more to talk about. We'll have to have her come back for another Yeah, we'll have to have part two of this deep dive. Yes, I'd love that. For now, I'm Esther Coro. 
And I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And we'll see you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. E.